take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Greetings, everyone. We want to welcome you to another edition of Field Preachers Podcast. Um, I'm Paul Nixon. And I'm Beth Estock. And today we are here interviewing two um, interesting characters, leaders of faith communities in a large city, large metro area, and a smaller metro area. We are visiting with them today about the um, impact following the murder of George Floyd a year ago, especially in the way they do ministry. Um, opportunities that have happened in their ministry and so forth. We have with us Ray Jackson. Um, Ray is um, the leader of the bridge at Asbury UMC um, in the District of Columbia. And also he leads um, a faith community called The Well, which reaches out beyond Washington, D.C. into Virginia and Maryland. Um, so in a large metro area, we have also with us um, Chris Sledge. Chris is pastor of The Journey which is a new church in Harrisburg, PA. Harrisburg being a city probably that is one-tenth the size of Washington, D.C. Um, I know that both of their ministries um, were impacted and also impacted um, the conversation that happened this last year. So, gentlemen, we want to welcome you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation, Paul and Beth. It's hard to believe it's been a year, but it was about a year ago. Um, that George Floyd was murdered, um, a murder in a long series of um, similar events. But in this case, a young woman documented the whole event on her smartphone and caused a global response. So when people were um, hitting the streets in your city to protest and to speak up, what was the first thing that went through your heads? And Ray, what about your situation? Yeah, I mean... um... It's, it's so hard to just pin one thing. Um, I think there was um, a lot of different emotions. But I think, oh, shoot, here we go again is probably one of the at the height of it. Um, we had just come off of the um, Ahmed Arbery um, situation. Um, and so we had already seen some things happen. And, you know, not just this year, but we've seen this tons of times. Um, so it, it was, you know, yeah, here we go again. Um, you know, in D.C., we saw um, the, the, the the destruction of the vandalism that sort of happened because people were angry. They were upset. And so um, how do we best protect um, the church? How do we best protect the people? Um, you know, I think it was a, a wide range of emotions that just sort of fall on you. And you try to navigate through your headspace as much as you possibly can um, without being overly worried and just becoming um, distracted by everything else happening. Yeah, and I, I would just just add to that, to like on the heels of Adnan Arbery, but also for us on the heels of our, I mean, just our city being shut down for so long just because of COVID. And it just felt like there was so much like pent up, at least in our city, just it was a lot of pent up like emotions and feelings in this time already dealing with Adnan Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and and then and then this. And then um, I, don't, I don't think anyone, at least, from my community, anyone who watched even a remote, even part of the video of George Floyd, the eight, the eight minutes and 46 seconds, which I know has been extended now after some of the most recent uh, like court conversation. Like, I, I think for, for our people, um, I, I just remember like our church is newer. And so I just like got on the phone and just started talking to some of our prominent like black leaders in our church. And I, I just remember like just hearing the pain that wasn't new to them, but the pain that, that, that this just kind of brought up again, like just brought up for them. And just like the, just the, the, I don't know the 
I don't know, like just the feeling that for that yet again, um, a, an unarmed black male um, for eight minutes and 46 seconds, it was a knee like that was just basically that, that murdered him. And I think for us, it was just thought of like, like what? Like it maybe even simply like how do, how do we like 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 as as obvious as it? I mean like it, it just I think for us just kind of created a lot of different questions and um, and it turned into uh, protests in our city didn't necessarily get violent. I mean there was one brick thrown in a cop car that was as big as the violence got in our city, um, but there were protests every day. There were there were people who were just like standing up at our state capitol just trying to trying to share. And so um, I just remember personally just kind of feeling like. Um, already feeling emotionally drained because of the season and just feeling like, just feeling this continued, uh, the feeling. I, I was so moved by the way that some persons, it, at least in the city of Washington, even as property they owned was, um, was vandalized or damaged. They looked beyond the damage and aligned with the movement and the call for justice. There were a couple. There were a couple episodes of that that I thought were deeply, deeply moving to see that kind of solidarity in the community. Did either of you um, find yourself inspired or encouraged by the way that your that, that your community responded, or certain persons in your community responded, maybe in ways that were unexpected? Yeah, I, I would. Um, I, it felt like at least in our city that that it began to be like. Um, there was, a, there was a unity that I felt at least in our city around wanting to stand up and being very vocal around Black Lives Matter and being very vocal around standing up for people. I, there's one particular person in my church, his name is Tim. And he began, he's a, he, he makes t-shirts as part of one of his businesses, like a, 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 like a black owned t-shirt maker in our city. He's a part of our church. And so he just began to make Black Lives Matter t-shirts and just would hand them out at rallies, right? Uh, just, just to get people to be able to publicly stand. So I have three t-shirts uh, that like he just gave me, right? Like to have different sayings on it, right? But just, and I just began to see people who uh, maybe who were quiet for so long or didn't feel like they had space to, uh, but just that people, and, and for me, I would even say people um, of color, but also people who are white, um, people from different ethnicity who are beginning to come together to say, like, to stand up against uh, the, the continued killings of, of black and brown men and women in our, in our country um, um, at the hands of police, but also just at the hands of violence in general. And so um, so that was just inspiring to me of just people like that who, who stood up. And um, I know one woman from our church, her, her son, Cole, was uh, was at every rally and she just like brought bottles of water just to hand out bottles of water to all the people who were there because it was like in the middle of the summer hot right um she's a strong black woman who was concerned about her son and so instead of saying don't go there she's like let me get water for everyone right and so so there were people like that at least in our community who were who who were affirming people who wanted to stand to, to protest and who wanted to uh kind of people who were just supporting that and so that was kind of inspirational to, to me in particular yeah, I, I think uh, sort of similar to Chris, um, we saw uh, like this amazing, overwhelming sense of unity that sort of transpired, um, you know, and it what I love is that there were people that um, who were not people of color, um, white people who who definitely, it, it was almost like COVID, I think it, it was the best moment that it could have happened. Not that there's ever a good moment for it to happen, but I think in terms of being able to focus, we were all at home, right? We were all, we all had to wrestle with all of these uh, moments that transpired and we had to come to some realization. Whereas in before COVID, pre-COVID, we were able to just go and 
go back to our regular jobs and everyday life had to happen in this situation or in these situations, you had to focus in on it. You, you could not go without hearing about it. And so what I love is that there were some folks who realized they needed to do some deep um, internal work of their own. Um, and I think it became reflective and people started asking, um, I always say the well, we're all about asking the right questions. And so the right questions were asked, mm-hmm. am I, um, have I been immune to this? Have I not paid this enough attention? Is this really a thing? Um, when, how does it end, right? I think all of these things folks had to now wrestle with because you could not escape it. Um, it was on your TV, it was on your radio, it was in your communities, it was in your neighborhood. People were talking about it everywhere. Um, and so I, I was I was pleased at the fact that it seemed like um, this caused and garnered attention that perhaps we would have never paid attention to like this before. Ray, over the weeks that followed, and you say that your church started to have these deeper conversations, how did that shift your ministry or your focus, if any at all? Like what, what happened out of that, that richness and that agitation, I would say, holy agitation? Yeah, <clears throat> um, it, it was really good because it, we, though we have been a very um, inclusive ministry, in terms of diversity and cultures, um, this really opened up the door to have tougher conversations. It also, and we're a ministry based on the conversation piece. Um, so the other piece was it helped us um, to be an example to other folks on how to have the conversations. Um, one of the uh, conversations we had in June of, of 2020 was how we have the talk. Um, it was solely based on that. And it wasn't just how do um, black and white have the talk? It was also how do um, white people with families who might see things differently have communication and what are the struggles there? Um, what are other people of color have talking about? Um, and so this really opened up the door of opportunity for us to be even more intentional about our engagement in the, in, with diversity. Um, and again, having the conversation for ourselves and illustrating the conversation for other people that might want to know how to better engage. I just want to take that a little bit deeper, Ray, to ask you, what are some of the gems that you discovered in how to have the conversation that you could share with all of us? Because in our polarized country right now, um, it's really hard for us to have any conversation at the moment. Yeah. Um, You know, I think one of the things we grew in was, really narrowing down on the understanding of perspective um, and understanding that all of us um, are shaped in some form or fashion by our nurture, right? Like who we grew up around, where we grew up, the environment in which we grew up, that's all of that sociology stuff. Um, We really, I think that was just a big piece for us to dive into and to try to really um, talk about so that we understood when you're coming to these sort of holy conversations, you're able to come um, understanding things like intrinsic bias, um, understanding um, you know the, the little nuances that we grow up with and we don't even realize sometimes that we're a part of or what we're doing um, um, micro with, with microaggressions, for example. Uh, and so it it really I think I think it 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 just pushed us and it challenged us um, to really listen, not just talk, but to listen. And I think that for us, even when you think you're listening, sometimes you're not because you're so grounded in your own beliefs and your own thoughts and values. Um, and so that was, I think, one of the biggest gems is just really 
that uh, holy conferencing, of, but, but being able to listen and really come into it with an open ear um, to go, well, maybe I don't agree with you all the way, but I see the truth in, in what you're saying there. And that's on all sides of the coin. It sounds like, Ray, um, you've created a community uh, of trust um, as, yeah. a, as a key ingredient for that kind of brave space, safe space to do that work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you have to be, you have to, you are, you have to uh, try to perfect your skills of moderating and facilitating, you know, because you, you have to come to the table ready to um, de-escalate, right? But also, I think you have to allow tension, healthy tension, too. And that's the piece that I think is good, right? Sometimes we don't want to experience that healthy tension, but it's necessary to get through. Um, and you're right, trust is key. It is very key. So what I'm hearing from you is one of your growing edges as a leader was developing those capacities to hold that space so that the difficult conversations could happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. And it's a continuing process. Yes. Because <laughs> a lot of times you're holding back your own frustrations, you know, like yeah. you hear somebody say something, you're like, in your mind, like, I know that they did not just say that. Like, they can't <laughs> be that silly, right? Like, but, you know, you can't just openly say that at all times. So, yeah, I mean, you know, practicing watching my own tongue is uh, <laughs> that's a growing experience, too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Chris, I'm going to ask you the same question. How did your ministry shift uh, in the following weeks? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. So it's one of the first things that we did, and it was one of a like a last minute thing a couple of days after George Floyd's death. Um, and it really sparked kind of a summer of this um, is we held this a Black Lives Matter prayer service and we, we shared it you know, all, using all social media. And, and I realized in this moment that we became one of the only churches in our small city that were really trying to have an active voice and active response to all that was happening. And so all I simply did was invite four people from my church, um, all, all people of color, just to tell their stories. Um, and there were people I had connected with, people whom um, are wise and articulate and have who are older, who have lived through this. George Floyd wasn't their first big awakening moment, right? But but this was, they had years of this. And so we just for an hour, just live, just shared stories. And um, and what that really began to do is we identified being a multi-ethnic church. And so there were white people in our church who've never recognized some of, you know, the, the talk or, or just, you know, the, 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 the teaching of how to respond when police pull you over or one woman just detailed um, in an emotional way of having to be over the phone, hearing her son being pulled over by a cop. And so, and just hearing in that sense. And I think for us, we began this season, a season and some of this empathy, and so we just, I think, over the last year, have just begun to tell stories. And 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 I think one of the, one of my titles I consider myself: How can I just be a curator of conversation and like a storytelling, right? And it's not necessarily my story, but how can I help other people tell their stories um, around injustice and how they've been treated, or implicit bias, or whatever it may be, or microaggressions, like some of the things that Ray's talking about, but also just to tell their own stories. And and I think for us, that's just invited space for other people just to be like. People who, people who are white to say like, I don't know how to have this conversation, right? And so that created on the, on the reverse side, some, some healthy space for people to say like, I want to engage in this conversation, but I don't know how. I want to be part of being a part of the change, but I don't even know where to begin because I don't want to offend. And so that just, I think, really helped kind of um, lower, uh, maybe lower the pressure just to say, how can we just have this uh, safe space? And so, so one of the things we've done as well is just use art. And so this past spring, 
someone in our church, she's, she's a well-known poet in our city. Her name is Marie. Everyone knows Marie in our city because we're small. Um, compared to DC, everyone knows Marie. And so she just <laughs> used her heart of poetry and just to tell the story of uh, women uh, from the civil rights movement uh, who had to deal with their own um, sexism and racism. And so she just it called Reclaiming My Time. And so she just told, uh, showed it in poetic form, had people from our city uh, be the actors. And so we just shared that as part of our church. And so for, uh, for me, I just thought, I've been thinking about how can we just use arts and just tell stories that hopefully then inspire people to have a level of empathy to be willing to engage and sit in the conversation. So I'm, I'm hearing a similar message from both of you, how important um, the sharing of story is mm -hmm. in this season and how as leaders um, you are both facilitating and curating that experience um, so that diversity of thought and perspective can have a space. Absolutely. Right. Several years ago, I was driving on a bridge about 10 miles over the speed limit and the flashing lights appeared in my rearview mirror and I pulled over and I was driving between a city I was coming out of a city where the majority of the population are persons of color, driving into a city where the majority of the population was white. And the city I was driving into was also where I was appointed as pastor. So the cop gets out, comes around, takes one look at me and goes, oh, shoot. And it was one of my parishioners. Okay. And he just, he says, you know, just um, um, good to see you, pastor, drive carefully and says bye-bye. And I thought to myself, well, there's privilege right there. Not only, but, but then, and he was such a great guy. I mean, he really, I mean, in a lot of ways, he really was a marvelous human being serving in that capacity, but put him in a different situation and where he didn't know me and implicit bias comes in. And I'm just a guy who lives in the city over here who happened to be driving 10 miles over the speed limit, same automobile going in that direction. And it could have been an extremely different encounter. And we've seen this over and over again. It's uneven. It's unjust. Um, and it's nothing new. And, um, you know, where does it end? Um, many folks have wondered if the collective experience in the past year has helped us to hit like a tipping point where something changes, where um, the, the, the difference of experience of persons on the basis of um, ethnicity does not create such a range of different experience, especially with encounters with law enforcement. Um, do, as pastors, do you see any hope here? Is something tipping? Is, do, you set, do you have a sense that anything's going to change in the near future? Um, I, I do. I, I definitely do. Um, and this is a tough question because <clears throat> it seems like sometimes for every step forward, we take three steps back at times. Um, yeah. So I do want to acknowledge that. But I do refer back to something I kind of sort of referenced earlier. And I think in this season, it is different because we are forced to pay attention. Um, I never forget when Barack Obama was uh, um, elected president. And um, there were people who actually said out loud, well, we gave you a black president. Um, so clearly we've moved past um, prejudice or segregation or racism. We, we can't have that now because we've got a black leader. Um, as if to say, right, because we elected a black leader, all of a sudden, the thought of racism, the notion of racism disappears. People, I think, were able to, or what that, what that, what sort of transpired is that people felt like instead of dealing with the issue of racism, we now could sweep it under the rug, right? And so now we've got this pile high of dust 
um, that we're letting build up. The problem with that is we didn't get rid of the dust. We just swept it under a rug. And so it's more, uh, it's less seen, it's less noticeable, but it's still there. And I think what happened in 2020 was that, uh, it reminds me of the title of that movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's the year that the earth stood still and folks had to come to grips with the fact that, oh, all the stuff we thought had disappeared has now crept from under the rug, right? Because the rug could know it, there was nowhere else for it to go. And so now it starts to appear. Um, but I think that the um, possible re positive result of that is that since now we are um, face to face with our sin, we're face to face with our past, even for folks who want to turn a blind eye to it, you cannot escape it. There are just too many things, too many events that are happening that you you cannot ignore. You, you can try, but you cannot ignore it in totality. And so um, because of that, I think we're in a place where we're forced to have to reckon with our history and reckon with our present um, in order to lead a better tomorrow. And just lastly, let me say this, I think that the young people are especially a key to that because where is some older folks want to turn a blind eye? There are a lot of older folks who are younger folks who are like, this is impossible. I have too many friends who are different colors or different backgrounds, different ethnicities, come from different cultures. My school is too diverse for, for us to act like this can just be ignored. Like you might like it, dad, or you might say, I will not stand for this, you know? Yes. And so I think um, there's a push in both of those ways to acknowledge and, and, and evolve. Yeah, I would say, Ray, I really appreciate, appreciate what you're saying. Uh, and I appreciate your hope actually uh, that, that, you know, cause as, Paul, when you asked that question at first, that maybe I'm in some cynical space, I was like, I, I maybe had more hope a year ago than I do right now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in, in some sense, I'm just like, I, I felt there was a lot of energy um, last uh, summer and throughout the year. But, you know, maybe maybe what, what kind of reinvigorated some sense of hope was just the, the verdict uh, for the George Floyd case. Um, that the police officer is being held accountable. And so for me, I think where I'll continue to see hope is when there's accountability for actions. And I think when there's not accountability, I will struggle to really know, has the system um, really been altered? Um, or are we really beginning to like reframe how, how we deal with, you know, policing or, or whatnot? And so even locally in our city, like uh, there was a big policing reform uh, bill that, that was passed. And so now we have more community policing in our city. Um, our our police commissioner, he's an African-American. Uh, he's been around forever, Commissioner Carter. And and yet, I guess I have hope, right? Um, I, so so maybe, but but maybe what I, what I pray I have more hope for in the future, just even as a person of faith is, I think churches will have to reckon with their past and their future in this moment in that um, Will will the churches of, of the future really have a clear stance around anti-racism or not? And I think for me, what was pretty significant for me was a year ago serving in a predominantly Black city um, as a church that made very few statements, we, somewhat internally, but not overly public. And, and I began to realize for myself, was like, if I'm going to have integrity to serve in this city and to serve this congregation, I, we have to make a clear stance around whose lives matter, right? Like, And whose lives are worthy of being alive and having good, abundant life, John 10, 10, right? And so for me, like, I guess I have hope when more faith leaders and more churches are willing to stand up um, and, and not to be overly, it doesn't have to be overly political if they're worried about that, but just to be willing to stand up and have a level of empathy and, and to see so all 
know, Black Lives Matter, right? Hispanic Lives Matter, right? Um, and and so I, I don't know. Um, so maybe I have hope in that, and maybe that our denomination is having that conversation or more with leaders. But I, I don't know, Paul. Like I, I think if 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 more churches don't stand up to race point, um, and um, maybe churches will become irrelevant if they're unwilling to to have a clear sense. Because I don't think young people. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I want to go to a church that doesn't have a clear stance. And so, um, yeah. Well, there's obviously no magic wand on this, and it's been uh, it, the 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 issue of unfair treatment between persons is rooted in hundreds of years of history, and you can't just wave a wand and, and that goes away. And it's sort of like you could have several um, good trial verdicts, and it still doesn't change the fact that this is an ongoing. You know, it's an ongoing situation to which we must respond in ministry. It's not going to change overnight. And there's, there's always the possibility of having, um, there's going to be more of these situations. They're, going, they're just going to happen. And um, maybe so. I want to delve a little bit deeper, Chris. You, uh, you got us on this topic, and I think it's a beautiful one to explore is, you know, this reckoning of the past and paving the way into the future. So I'm just curious, what do you think, like five, 10 years from now, realistically, what would God's preferred future be if, um, you know, the Holy Spirit is here now with us and saying, okay, it's time to reckon with racism. And, uh, and this is the church's role in this. And this is, this is where we're going, people. What does that look like for you? What is that work for the church to claim? Wow. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful question, Beth. Thank you. Thank you for asking that. Um, I have this image. I don't know if it's the right image, but it's the image that comes to my mind is, um, so our city is, um, is divided. So like where, where our church is, where it's the East shore, uh, across the river is the West shore. It's often known as the white shore. Um, and so there are, there are like multiple bridges, maybe 10 bridges that crown across, but it's very clear, um, just how things have happened throughout the years. And, um, and so white flight and all of those things where people left, left urban areas. And, and that's very much true in our city. And so I have this image though, of, um, of a beautiful, cause I think for me, this work of reconciliation or this work of redemption and is really the work of all people. Um, and, and it is very much people who are white, who conservative, liberal, I don't care people from the South or the North, just people beginning to cross bridges, and be willing to like, I have this image, like there's one particular bridge in our city where people are just willing to stand across the bridge and just look face to face and begin to see each other as human beings worth, worth um, have worth and value and dignity. And so for me, the next five years is maybe that we become less talking heads and, 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 and we listen to less talking heads on the television and social media and we just continue to tell and listen to more stories. And, and so for, for me, part of it, I read this great book this spring called Reconciling All Things um, by Kentangela and Rice. I think they're scholars from Duke. And so they talk about how it'll take just as many years as a conflict has been created for the healing to happen. And so if we have 300 years of racial injustice, it's going to take 300 years um, of healing work in our nation, which just feels overly unhopeful. And so maybe for me, what I would hope is just five more years that that more church leaders, more faith leaders, more people in our pews and, and just begin to recognize some of the deep pain that's happened. And so maybe it's just more of a, of more of a recognizing and, and learning um, and maybe growing in empathy. And so maybe that's maybe that would be my hope. Um, I, ha- I feel like I'm normally not optimistic, but I'm not tend to be optimistic in this because I just think I've, I've heard and seen too many things where we just are willing to ignore um, 
you know, people's stories, which I think is, is, is an insult to God and insult to people's lives. And yeah, I'd love to know what Ray has to think though. Yeah. Uh, wow. Thanks for the handoff, Chris. I, I was, I was still intrigued and in listening to what you were saying, man. Um, I, um, I, I think, I think Chris kind of said it in a way, um, I think I struggle with that question. I appreciate the question. I do. I think I struggle with the question. Um, because when you've lived in the less dominant culture, um, you're so used to surviving. Um, and so you don't even know sometimes what victory looks like um, because you're just so busy surviving. Um, but uh, Martin Luther King said in his speech, um, you know, uh, the mountaintop speech, he says, I don't know what will happen now, um, but, um, you know, he says, we've got some difficult days ahead. And he talks about not getting to that promised land, um, but, you know, wanting to do God's will. Um, I think that's the position that I've had to place myself in. Um, I know, right, that in the next uh, dozens of years that I might have life if God grant, I'm not going to see total victory. This. It, it's just not going to happen because you cannot take the past and just, you know, act like it never happened or just change and correct things overnight. Um, but I think that what I like to see and what I would think, um, I, I believe that Jesus would be happy with, or God would be happy with is just the work being done. Um, and a full commitment of, um, the church to that work. I think it's time for cross denominational work, cross cultural work. Um, if we're going to be the church, we have to lead in the example of we can do this together. We might not agree on all of our theologies. We might not agree on, you know, all of our stances, but we can work on things like this together. Um, and I think we have to see that work. So I think, you know, if I, if I could shorten this, I guess it would be to see over the next five years, really a, um, some sort of a collective effort between churches, entities, between religions, faiths, governments, that say, you know what, we do understand there's a larger problem and we are going to try to put policies and faith and practices in place so that we can at least work towards achieving the goal of annihilating um, racism, you know, as we know it. What I'm hearing from both of you is there's this, okay, a continue with the stories, continue with the redemptive work of that and that, that deep listening. Um, but also this move into into uh, the 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 neighborhood, the um, the politics, the economics, um, the interchange between uh, different organizations, yeah. and in particular, what do you see in your particular church as the role and your stand in the next five years in the midst of all of that and this long unfolding of three hundred years of of uh, healing work that we have to do. Um, you know, I'm glad you followed up with that, uh, because as you were talking, one of the things that does stick out to me, I am big on cultural understanding. I, I think that we have got to learn how to appreciate uh, the differences in cultures, and especially in our own country. Um, you know, there has to be some, um, some push, right, towards, okay, what does it mean? I, and I always say, I, I did a, a sermon, um, and Paul knows I, I helped to build what's called the Table Church in here in the district, and it's, it's diverse as well. Um, my last sermon that I did there, I had a hoodie on. It was on, you know, it was over, uh, uh, it was over the computer. It was virtual. I had a hoodie on. I had my, my dreadlocks forward, 
and I said, part of the reason I'm doing this because I don't normally preach in a hoodie. There are times that I'm that we are very comfortable, but normally not in a hoodie. And I said, I am intentionally doing this because I want this to be the image in your head the next time you see a young black man with uh, hair or a hoodie. Um, because we've got to start doing the work of making sure we're changing um, the, the picture, the, the bigger picture, right? Just because I have a hoodie on doesn't make me a suspect. Just because I have long hair does not make me a suspect. And that's the cultural appreciation, right? Just because, um, you know, some of our women show up at the church with maybe more tighter fitting things or maybe they're, they're, they have more skin showing, right? We've got to start to understand and do the deep, the deep work of what, does, what does that mean in your culture, right? What, how do you define sacred? What's sacred, right? And how does sacred um, come across in your culture? So I think for me, I really take ownership of doing that type of work um, in all of my ministries is making sure that we're coming to the table and we are um, presenting each culture in its fullness or in its vastness so that there's more understanding and appreciation for each person's background, ethnicity, culture, et cetera. In that sermon, you were building a bridge toward other young people in your community that we might see as we walk down the street. You were building that bridge because um, you, you were leaning in that direction. And from and, and, and now you, you the, the commu- one of the communities that you lead is called The Bridge. And then, Chris, you've talked about the bridges um, between two parts of your community. Um, bridge building seems to be a part of the work. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Just the work of bridge building in the community? I think it's, I think part of it is, is for me wanting to make sure that I never think of my church as simply the people who attend my church currently or, or my building, but really to think about, I mean, to think about just the city as as the place where God has placed me, and if I if I if I want like if I believe in Scripture, but I want to seek the welfare of the city, the place where God has placed in me. And so, for me, I think part of the bridge building is like connecting with civic leaders, right? Having it's easy for me in a smaller city, right? I can easily connect with my mayor, right? I can eat, I could text him right this moment, right? To connect with police commissioner, right? Um, to, to talk with our state representative, and to really continue to say how can, how can we as as one of one of many community centers in our city be be an ally and be a support um, for for some of this deeper for some of this deeper work. I think part of this work is beginning to reframe some of our theology, right? And so, how do we move away from an Americanized picture of Jesus, right, and more one that's maybe a little bit truer, right? Brown, black Jesus rather than white, blonde hair blue-eyed Jesus, right? And so beginning to kind of recenter, right? That Jesus is a refugee, right? Rather than uh, Jesus who, you know, lives in my neighborhood, picket fence, you know, two kids, right? White dog, right? Whatever it may be. So beginning to recenter. But also I think part of it is how, how can I, as a person who has power and voice in my community, yield my power to those in our, in our local, in my city, whose voices need to be heard. And so how, how can I invite different musicians or, or speakers or leaders, people of faith or not, to begin to speak in and begin to kind of do some of this, this healing work. And so we ha- we're a church where people from this West Shore come to our church because they, they want to be part of this. And so how can I not simply say, hey, great job for coming to the shore, but how can I also begin to put them in situations where they're having to, to listen to different kind of voices and to have different perspectives or of worship or whatever that means. And um, I, I don't know. I think part of the end of the day, I, I always think about in the season, 
I found it's much easier to make statements on social media, to have a really great crafted statement that our church can put out there. And it feels really good in the moment. We've made a statement and it feels good. And, and I have found that the deeper work is willing to, to back that up and be willing to do something about it. And I, I always find that like, I've had to check myself even recently. If, if I just want to make a statement for making a statement to make us look like we're a church who's doing this work, you can do that. But I want to make sure if we make any statements or we have anything public around this, that we're willing to do some of our internal work and, um, and even to check power in our church, check privilege in our church, and check who, 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 ha- who has, what, what culture has the dominant power in our church, right? Is it a white dominant culture or is it a black dominant culture? Whatever it is, but, but who's holding power and who's making decisions in our own local church uh, to make sure in our diversity that we're really representing the fullness of God and the fullness of people in our community. And, um, and that's, that's really important uh, to some of this bridge building as well. Um, Paul. When we think about discipleship historically, we think about prayer, Bible reading, um, going to church every Sunday, um, serving on a ministry team. This is the way discipleship has been defined in most of the 20th century in Methodism. Um, I, I am aware, both in, in terms of what's going on at discipleship ministries, but, but in the broader work right now, I am aware that there is a shift to embrace anti-racism as a key component of discipleship that is very much um, a new emphasis compared to what the discipleship conversation was 30 years ago. As you think about that, and as you think about the fact that, that this uh, podcast is sponsored by Discipleship Ministries, what would be some thoughts you would have for churches and individuals who are seeking to widen their understanding of discipleship? What does it mean for churches and individuals to embrace anti-racism? Any thoughts on that, either what it means or how we might can, can help folks here? Um, I, I think it's necessary <laughs> to, to say that at, at, the, at the least. As Chris was talking, um, the word that kept coming to my mind is relationships. Um, relationships, relationships, relationships. Churches have to teach people and train people how to build relationships. That is the work of anti-racism. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that because I do believe that white people especially, um, I think that they have to own doing the deep digging themselves. I think um, so part of being anti-racist or anti-racist understanding is taking the time to not necessarily just go ask someone what they've experienced, but researching for yourself. Um, you know, I mean, in a, in a day where knowledge is at your fingertips, you've got a phone, you've got, you know, your iPads, you've got the web, you can hop on and you can do research. Um, and then, right, like there are folks who are willing to have the conversation, but I don't think you want to burden people with the conversation. Um, but I think there's some internal work of doing that themselves. So even, the, even if your church is a majority um, white or you don't have many people of color, then perhaps even offering things, programs, incentives at your church to do the, the work. So I think there's work that has to be done. Yes, anti-racism is important. The, the second thing, the reason I said relationships is because I recall um, a couple of weeks ago, we did a well, uh, and I always try to have some conservative uh, people on and then some liberal people on just to sort of make sure we're uh, evening the field of the conversation. But a young friend of mine, I asked her to come on. It was right after the crimes in Atlanta um, that was uh, allegedly against the Asian community. And uh, she's Asian and, um, you know, she couldn't make it on the program. She was going out of town. But I remember she said to me, 
Um, yeah, but I'm sure you'll be fine. She said, I'm, I know I'm not your only Asian friend like a lot of people, so you got some other people you can ask. And I felt so um, good, though, challenged but good, because I did have other Asian friends that I could ask. But I know I thought it, it was self-reflective because I was like, oh, my God, what if in this moment I only had one Asian friend? What would I have done? You know, like, who else would I have asked? And then you go, it, like, you know, you get uh, convicted. You're like, oh, my God, am I that person? So um, I said this thing, like anti-racism work is about relationships. You've got to start building your relationships. If I only have one black person in my friendship circle, why, right? Like, why don't I have more? Why don't I have Hispanic friends, right? Um, what does that say about me? What does that say about my culture? What does that say about where I'm willing to put myself, right? What does that say about my nurture, how I've been brought up? So yes, Paul, the, the work of anti-racism is important. Um, it is a must. And I believe that a lot of it is on, on one hand, knowledge, uh, researching, understanding, but on the other hand, it's also about relationships, expanding your relationships so that you're inclusive of having those people around you that don't look like you. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's so right. Like, I appreciate just the, the language of just relationships. And um, I have one guy in the city who's a prominent, like, theologian. He would also say, like, the reason why racism still exists is because like the church has struggled for the racism in the church, the church has struggled to have a robust discipleship that is expansive than merely this like individual um, salvation, you know, conversation, right? That it's, all, it's always been just between me and God and that's it. And so I think the tension here is the, to go beyond just me and God, but like me and community, me and neighbor, the very person that God has called me to love. And, and, and I think part of, part of, I think the work of, of discipleship is just really, um, our church participated this past spring over Lent, um, our church, people of color and, and a prominently a large white church in the area. And we just had a Bible study together. And part of the reason why we did that, and we used a, a method that I had learned in seminary just around interpreting scripture from your, from different perspectives, from, from your own uh, place of origin. So, uh, or your own culture. And so part of, I think, when I think about anti-racism and discipleship is beginning to learn how other people interpret scripture differently because of their own personal experience, right? Uh, that's not been maybe middle-class, white, where everything's been handed to you, right? And so, um, or whatever it may be, right? And so, uh, so I think that's part of it is just really, um, but it's, it is based upon uh, relationships. And, um, but, but I think maybe the hardest part is um, when I think about discipleship is, um, who are we reading and like what kind of what kind of resources are we placing in front of people like in like Bible studies? Is it always people who are white or who are male? Um, are, are we are we giving us resources that are of people of color or um, or are from a different country of origin? And so I think part of it is the onus is on us as leaders to say what kind of material, what kind of things that we're placing it with our people so that they're they're growing and, and their knowledge or experience is expansive. So grateful that you took the time to sit down with Paul and I today um, to have uh, a rich conversation. I feel really blessed that uh, both of you who have been shaped and formed in how to have a conversation have been willing to have one with us to expand not just um, our understanding, but for all of us who are listening in to this conversation today. So thank you so much. Thank you for your ministry. Blessings on both of you as you continue to, to speak into this and to lead your churches um, in the ways of love and peace. 
Ray and Chris are both um, church planters in the United Methodist Church, and this is Field Preachers Podcast, a ministry of the United Methodist Church. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.